Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a special episode, a conversation with beloved meditation teacher Pema Chodron about something I think many of us feel in our current climate, the challenge of living with vulnerability. Pema Chodron is a Buddhist nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the author of When Things Fall Apart, Start Where You Are and How to Meditate. With Sounds True, Ani Pema, as she is often called by her friends and students, has created many audio learning programs and online courses, including a powerful course on living with vulnerability. This conversation is a rebroadcast of a webinar that originally launched the Living with Vulnerability online course. The webinar featured questions from listeners about their own challenges dealing with loss and uncertainty, including questions about feeling regrets and how to work with chronic illness and grief. With warmth and intelligence, Ani Pema has a gift for helping us embrace whatever challenges we're experiencing with a whole lot of tenderness. Here's a special episode on living with vulnerability with Pema Chodron. Ani Pema, welcome. Hello there, Tammy. I'm ready for questions. All right, let's get right into it. There you are, ready to roll. I want to begin with the title, Living with Vulnerability. Some people, I think, when they hear the word vulnerability, feel quite uncomfortable. Other people are, finally, someone's going to talk about the times we live in and how I feel in the aging process and this tremendous sense of fragility that I think more and more people are tuning into. So tell me a little bit about living with vulnerability, especially for those people who see this as something not very attractive. Really? Yeah. So living with vulnerability. Well, um, it's interesting because uh, this has been a topic that I've been interested in for years and years and I've taught about in many uh, different ways. Like, you know, for instance, uh, the book, uh, When Things Fall Apart, that's a lot about vulnerability, right? When things fall apart. And so, um, and then currently, uh, particularly because of Brene Brown, there's like there's all this um, positive teachings on, on the topic of vulnerability, which pleases me immensely because it's so important to me. Um, and the reason it's important to me is because I have found that until people um, really learn, uh, not so much learn, but uh, have the experience of turning toward or softening to or welcoming uh, things that are uncomfortable and um, uh, uh, edgy energies and uh, uh, um, any kind of difficult feelings, what we might, we might call painful feelings. And so vulnerability is definitely in that category of things that um, if we move towards them, uh, they have so much to teach us. And if we hide from them, uh, it it's it's actually hiding from a whole aspect of life, which is um, uh, uh, important and part of a human life is this vulnerability. I mean, you mentioned aging. 
there's uh, uh, if sickness and aging, those things are inevitable in human life. And there's many other things that cause us to feel vulnerable and uncertain as well. And um, so some sense of moving towards those things as a way to embrace life fully, because when you cut out whole parts of your life that you're, you cannot deal with um, in the process, you, you are closing down to life in general, you know, just trying to find something uh, that is uh, certain and predictable. And um, it's, it's very unlikely that you'll find it for more than a very short period of time. So getting used to and uh, ha having a uh, wholehearted relationship with tenderness, with vulnerability, with things falling apart, it's, 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 it's really uh, is a life changer. I can say that. Honey Pema, what are the key capacities or trainings that someone needs to have under their belt in order to turn towards this vulnerability with any type of confidence and a willingness to get in there? Right, right. Well, um, there's, there's two things I would say. I mean, the first thing is um, uh, meditation, the type of meditations that allow you to become extremely familiar with your own mind and your own habitual patterns uh, with an attitude of uh, acceptance, uh, an attitude of loving kindness, an attitude of kindness uh, in general towards your own um, uh, uh, perhaps very disruptive habitual patterns and um, your mental states. So becoming very, very familiar as um, as a way of developing a deep, deep, unshakable, friendly friendship with yourself. And, um, and the other is that um, some kind of somatic um, training, some kind of some ability to stay with, with, with your body, to feel your body, to be able to have a sense of your body. So touching in, um, there's very uh, many disciplines currently that you can do that with somatic experiencing, for instance, but many others as well. And, um, and so, for instance, Reggie Ray does a lot with body, and so do other teachers as well. Um, but even with just meditation, um, if you become accustomed to uh, not just meditating um, sort of with your head, but more meditating with your heart and having a sense of being very grounded when you meditate, uh, if you're sitting in a chair, your feet on the floor, your butt on the seat, and um, uh, if you're sitting on a cushion, a uh, sense of your where your legs are, where your feet are, what that feels like, what your body feels like. So for instance, just as a simple uh, way of, of somatic experiencing is that when you begin meditating, you, you, you do a kind of... Um, uh, if people are familiar with a body scan, where you stop at the, start at the top of the head and you just slowly move down through your whole body, just touching in with what you're feeling in your body, every part of your body, all the way down, looking for any um, tension um, and just putting your attention there and breathing, let, let things open up and just keep all the way down to the soles of your feet and then slowly, slowly coming up again. So getting embodied before you start to meditate and uh, carrying that into your life. So for instance, someone was just telling me uh, today about how when she gets um, very worked up, her, her practice is to feel her feet on the floor, to just ground herself in, in space, like touch the earth and be present physically and then also have a large sense of space around her. So that combination is something that she finds very, very powerful. And because she can do it any time, it's always available to her. Uh, it's a way of working. For instance, that would be a way of working with feelings of vulnerability, that you could feel your feet, ground yourself in your body, be fully embodied, and at the same time, just have a sense of how much space there is around you. I mean, literally the space in the room you're in and the space outside the room and 
you can go to the whole universe if you really want to talk space, you know. So um, does, does that address what you were asking? It does. And I, I have a further question, which is in the online yeah. course, Living with Vulnerability, you emphasize that we can touch those experiences of shakiness or fragility with kindness. And as you're describing yeah. turning towards our physical experience, where does the kindness come in? In, uh, in being embodied or being... Yeah, and in uh, feeling our feet. In... I mean, it's sort of neutral. It's not necessarily kind or not kind. What do you mean by bringing kindness into the picture? Yeah, a kind of... Um, you, you know, sometimes it's difficult to, to find uh, adequate words, but it's like warmth. I guess you could say warmth. And that word's not going to mean something to everybody who, who's listening, but it will mean something to some people a sense of um, uh, embracing or um, so for instance, if you're doing a body scan, where's the tenderness? Well, it pretty much, it seems neutral, neutral, neutral. But then when you hit like um, a physical pain or you hit a numb place because there's some kind of trauma or something like that, then that's when the kindness really comes in rather than feel that you've done something wrong, feel that there's something wrong with your body, for instance. That's mm -hmm. so common, so common, um, that you you instead um, have a, a tender attitude, a, a gentle attitude, a, a sense of warmth directed towards physical pain or towards the um, low um, uh, derogatory self-image or any of that, you, directing... I don't know. Is that too vague? <laughs> no, I think it's helpful. This I, Maybe this. I'm more specific in the class. I don't know. <laughs> well, we have a specific question for you. We have Johanna has called in from California. So we'll okay. move right to Johanna. Johanna, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, Pema, for your teachings. They have helped me so much on this journey. And one of the things I've learned is to open up to feelings, but that means that there are a lot of good but also bad feelings. And yeah. I wanted to ask for your advice about how to work with past mistakes, but mostly with regrets and regrets yeah. about having hurt people. It just hurts so much. Right, yeah. Well, um, the main thing is to be willing to acknowledge um, with, uh, are you capable of uh, feeling regret without guilt? Do you think? I'm not so sure about that. I think there is. <laughs> I think there that's, is. A... That's the trick, actually. That's the trick. And, and if it's a trick that you currently, you know, it's not in your toolbox, so to speak, but uh, that is the trick is how to, be able to acknowledge, um, yes, I, in fact, I really did, like in my case, there's a number of people in my life that are really, really hurt when I was in my early 30s. And of course, I have just enormous regret. But, but somehow I've learned over the years to not have it turn into guilt. And the difference between regret and guilt as an experience for me, me personally is that um, regret is has um, a sort of a heart quality, like a, uh, there's this expression, genuine heart of sadness. It has a sort of sadness. And, and um, um, it's almost like the feeling of, I wish I hadn't, not only do I wish I hadn't done that because it hurt the other people, I wish I had known better at that time. I wish I had been wiser at that time. So it's, it's almost like sending... Um, some kind of kindness to that younger person. Um, uh -huh. uh, and, and, but guilt is, uh, it becomes a sort of a major, uh, to use the Buddhist language, ego thing, you know, where there's uh -huh. big deal, uh, I'm a bad, I'm bad. There's a lot of solid self-image about I'm bad, I'm bad. And you just don't let go of it. It's almost like if I let go of it, then that means I'm not sorry enough or something. That makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you yeah. can re uh, acknowledge with regret, without it being um, so 
so such a big drama about yourself and how bad you are, but just more of a sense of, so I don't know how long ago it was that you did, you hurt people that you feel the regret, but, um, have some sympathy for that. Yeah. So, so having some sympathy for that younger person who didn't know any better at the time, you know, and then you, um, you can, you can, um, have a sense of, of, uh, laying it aside or, um, uh, uh, it's like in, you know, in the 12 steps, they actually have a, uh, steps of where you acknowledge, you do a fearless inventory of everyone you've hurt and everything. And it's very important to finally fess up to it, or uh, that's a kind of harsh language, but it's very important Mm -hmm. to acknowledge and with the regret. And then, um, and then go forward because you can be freed of these things if you can do that um, fully without the guilt. So. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that that makes a a lot a lot of sense. And what you said about it's like I I can't stop feeling guilty because then it means I'm not really sorry. You know that That's that right. part yeah. just resonates so much, but. When I think about the regrets, it's it's almost my heart hurts physically, and I get so sad, you know, like it's like. Well, sad is good. Sad is good. Sad is good. Uh Sad sad has, Uh sad is, uh, let sad be a connector for you with humanity, you know. Let sad be Uh a connector with that life has sadness and life has joy and life has hard Uh times and life has beautiful times. And it's a complete picture, and you can't live a human life without all those uh, aspects being part of it. And it, it's um, some kind of myth that you could avoid all the painful parts and just um, have the pleasant part. That's definitely never going to happen. Um, mm. Everybody tries, and, and, and it never happens. And <laughs> they they mm. keep trying anyway, you know. So I don't know. I yeah. think that uh, uh, just to. So the fact that it hurts and you feel sad, think of that as actually good. That's feel. Think of that as growth. That's what growth feels like. Hmm. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much. It really, really makes a lot of sense. Thank you deeply. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Johanna. Thank you. A follow-up question for you, Ani Pema. I heard some yeah. feedback from people who have engaged with the Living with Vulnerability online course and this idea that we're supposed to turn towards and that this gives us the opportunity, turning towards our sadness, that then we can move through it, not around it. And there can be this agenda. This is what I've heard from people like, okay, I'm turning towards it. I want to move through the sadness to the other side, right? There is another side. Let's go. So how do you make this move (laughs) without having that agenda? Yeah. But it, what does it mean exactly, agenda? It means um, that you... Somewhere you I'm going. A, I want to get to the other side. Like, let's get... I see. Here's I we're, see. That's right. I'm right. willing to do this if it's all going to feel fine. At the other yeah, exactly. The other Sad, sadness yeah. is going to be a gateway, but let's get through it. Yeah. And so actually, you know, it's almost trite, but the, that, that nowadays it's so um, so popular idea, actually, that um, the journey is is... The uh, the actual journey is the um, the learning is in the journey. Mm-hmm. It does. It's you don't get to a future place. It's like now, right now, is um, you're turning toward and the learning to that you're big enough to hold sadness, for instance. You know, you're big big enough to hold um, a vulnerability. You're big enough to hold those things, and you and you can if you feel yourself contracting, you can expand if you feel physically contracting you can expand and there's various things you can do but that in itself then it becomes the the um the growth that is the growth so it's not there there's it's like people who want to be on the other side but don't want to do the work you know but on the uh, but you it's not really about reaching someplace it's about a, a slow process of growth and um have any of you ever in your just lifetime 
been able to say when you suddenly went from adolescence or went from, you know, being a teenager to being um, um, more mature or something like that, you know, you, you, it's just a process and it, you can't exactly pinpoint it. You can say when your birthday is and when you turn 21 or something like that. But when does, when do you actually feel the shift? Well, usually you feel it in retrospect. So you don't get to actually watch yourself grow, but uh, you can sort of have a certain um, confidence that the growth is happening uh, mm -hmm. each time that you're willing to stay present with your experience with a, with a kindness, you know. All right. We have Jacqueline from Portland ready to go. Jacqueline, welcome. Thank you so much. Pema, I'll briefly say thank you deeply for your practices. I'll say that the practices of working hard to stay with those shaky feelings of vulnerability have, as you say, been life-changing. And they have deepened my compassion for both myself and others. And my question is, in conflicts, when I want to stay open and grateful to everyone for what they can bring me and teach me, are there also some circumstances where it's also beneficial to draw boundaries and to appeal mm -hmm. for accountability? So is it, is, it, um, is it also necessary in certain situations to draw boundaries and have accountability? Absolutely, yes, it is, definitely. And uh, so sometimes people take these teachings and use them, um, sadly, you know, uh, uh, as a reason for staying, for instance, in an abusive relationship. Let's just use that as an example. And, um, and often in, in relationships um, that are difficult and challenging, I think part of the learning is, uh, part of it is learning to stay present with your feelings. And another part is like um, knowing when to say uh, enough is enough or knowing that in certain circumstances, the kindest thing you can do for the other person as well as for yourself is to set boundaries. So for instance, just to go back to abusive relationship, um, it is not uh, in any way kind to, to uh, allow someone to be abusive. Um, it's definitely uh, very traumatizing and harmful for you but it's also uh, very, very damaging for them. So anything you can do to set boundaries can be extremely helpful for somebody who um, has such a strong habitual pattern of aggression, for instance, um, that they, uh, if you always respond in the same way, then that keeps their habitual pattern going. Whereas if you draw boundaries and say, no, uh, this isn't okay, this isn't acceptable, uh, however it is you want to draw the boundaries. That's a, that's a big learning experience right there is how to draw boundaries. And uh, we learn a lot through our mistakes on that one. But we, yeah, when you learn that, that's often the, usually actually the kindest, kindest, most compassionate thing you can do for the other person as well. That, that really resonates with me. It, it is challenging to learn how to do it with kindness and with gentleness, but I, I do agree that it can be very, very beneficial to, to me when others do it to me, it, it can be a very important learning experience and, and that I can offer that to others as well. Thank you. That's right. And, and you know that if someone uh, offers you feedback and it has, um, uh, come, you can hear that it's coming from a place of that they care about you then you're, you're much more apt to be able to actually hear that and not just be defensive. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so, so, but in any case, drawing boundaries is helpful to you and to the other person, but it, it's even more, even they get the point quick, more quickly. If you're, if you're come, you're firm and it's not always sound all that gentle, you know, but you're firm and direct, but it's not coming from a place, place of hatred. Um, I think yeah. that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Jacqueline, thank You're you. Welcome. 
Thanks for joining us. We have another caller. Uh, this is a gentleman named John from Toronto. Mm-hmm. Ani Pema, are you ready? I'm ready for John, yes. All right. John, welcome. Hi, Tammy. Uh, I'm really honored to ask a question. So uh, my question is, uh, sometimes um, making friends with the internal nasties, I, I feel like I overdo it and it gets me into thick mud that's so thick I, I lose all energy to practice. Uh, oh. Like it can get reduced it can get reduced to like crying, sleeping for half the day, the dog doesn't get walked and pees inside. You know, uh, I got divorced recently yep. and my husband... Yeah. And my husband, he really wanted an open marriage. And, you know, from my sex addiction recovery, I knew I couldn't handle it. So anyway, I'm not sure whether to go into formal practice more deeply and use Sangha energy to help me kind of worm through it, or if that will just kind of add to the wet mud and there won't be enough straw to use a composting analogy. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. yeah, it does. So, you know, what, what you describe it, it sounds like... Uh, a very natural um, kind of like you know I would I think it would normally be called depression, but when um, an, a marriage breaks up, it's so common you know uh, to experience something like that. It's a kind of death, isn't it, really? And um, mm-hmm. uh, um, a sense of loss. And um, so uh, you saying did you did if I understand you correctly, you're saying that. The making friends with yourself or the uh, kindness towards yourself can get um, can this lead to more depression in a way because then you start feeling sorry for yourself and start um, as you say crying which is not a bad thing in itself but um, you're saying you sort of get swept away with um, uh, sadness and because of being um, yeah. kind to yourself. Well, yeah, maybe it becomes kind of like addicted to, like crying is cathartic, but then maybe that emotional release becomes kind of necessary in terms of all the other things that I'm doing in my life that make me sad. So it's like, it just seems like it might not be the best cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you always have to trust yourself on these things. And um, I, I can't see that um, kindness actually could ever really uh, lead you astray. But um, were you saying, you, did you say, did you ask me, would it be better to just get on with my practice? And like, um, do you still do Zen practice? Yeah, I do. Um, and so I was thinking, should I try to like do something in a formal setting where there's like a Sangha schedule and people to kind of say, well, you didn't get up this morning, John, what's going on? Or is it I better see. to say, no, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, that's really a good question. I, I think that um, it could be very, very supportive and helpful. I say that really based on living here in the monastery um, in Nova Scotia and how people come often with exactly your kind of situation and they find the uh, schedule and the um, uh, discipline combined with a lot of um, warmth uh, here, uh, but that that combination of you get up in the morning and you go and you practice and you have silence in the morning and you practice all morning and then you work with people in the afternoon and it's all very like monastically predictable, you know, and people find that really, really helpful, particularly if there's a teaching component happening um, involved. Mm. And um, have you ever done any uh, IMS uh, practices, any like Vipassana retreats at um, Barry or or Spirit Rock or anything like that? No, I haven't. Yeah, I think it might be interesting to you to uh, just look at their schedule uh, of their offerings, what they're offering, and see if there's something that really appeals to you because the, what the, the reason I suggest this, or you know, and it might not be a suggestion that you want to follow up on, but the reason I suggest it is because there's very, very good discipline, and it's also a, a very uh, soft atmosphere, a gentle atmosphere, you know. However, you were drawn to Zen, so maybe uh, some kind of um, sashim, um, short sashim type thing, or what might be better, you know. You have to really. Uh, 
you, you have to experiment a little bit, but I think your instinct that maybe to be around people and have some outer discipline, I think that could be really helpful to you. As long as you feel, as long as there's a lot of sitting going on so that you're um, able to work with your emotions and all that's coming up as, in other words, you're going through a grieving process actually, and uh, you need to be able to go go fully through that and not um, uh, uh, check out so that you're not really uh, in touch with what's happening with you and the sense of loss, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank Does you that so make much. Sense? You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you, John. Honey Pema, John's question brought up something I wanted to ask you about, which is, uh, I have heard from many people who are interested in the Living with Vulnerability course that they are going through a grieving experience of some kind. And in that grief, there's a sense that it's not even what's happening at the level of my mind, the person's mind that really matters. Sometimes there's no even storyline happening, but incredible physical sensations of anguish and being leveled by the pure physicality of the experience that feels overwhelming, yeah. like somehow I've been yeah. made a feeble lump. And it doesn't, really yeah. ma- it doesn't really matter what I'm thinking, I'm just on the couch. Right. I, How I do so. people work with that experience? It's so devastating. Well, it'd be nice if there was just some like simple answer I could give you of do this, this, and this, and everything will be fine. But again, it's uh, I think it's a journey, and it's a journey that um, involves uh, opening to sorrow and opening to that physical, all that, all that physical. Um, for instance, when I when I the I remember it as being the first time that everything really fell apart for me. And uh, uh, what you're talking about, the physicality was so intense at uh, that particular time. It's never been quite as that intense as that since. And at one point I was actually catatonic. I, I literally couldn't move uh, off the couch or speak or anything. I just sat there, you know? And um, so I know how intense it can get. Uh, the uh, the, the main thing, though, is that you are in touch again with your body, that there is a sense of embodiment. There, there is a sense. I know people, for instance, who um, hug themselves at times like that, you know, that some kinds of physical touch um, can be so incredibly powerful, like even taking your hand and putting it on your cheek and just holding your hand on your cheek, just some kind of tender gesture towards yourself or the more, the very um, kind of common one where you take your hand and you put it over your heart. And those things can be so comforting because it's physical. You, you're, you're actually not trying to think anything or getting away from anything, but you're, you're adding that aspect of, of uh, it's okay. What I'm feeling feels horrible. It, uh, I, I don't like it, but fundamentally, there's nothing wrong happening here. And you and you do that by physical gesture, you know, such as touching the heart or touching the face or um, uh, anything along that that line. Hugging oneself. People do different things. The other thing, actually, which is uh, in terms of physicality. And this is like the last thing that you want to do, but actually is powerful. And that is to dance. And, um, and sometimes it's not, you know, going out and dancing at a club or something, but just dancing, just dance, getting up in your room and just starting to dance, dance, dance it, dance it, you know, and people sing too. Sometimes they just open their mouth and sing, you know? So I, all those things are somehow allow you to be present physically with what's going on physically with you. Uh, so, um, yeah, I understand you do this kind of work, uh, Tammy, working with physicality. And uh, 
But I, I do. Which is gonna... no, which is part of the way that I know how painful it can be from my own yeah, personal right. experience and how oh, yeah. non-conceptual it can be too. It's like, wh what is this? I, you know, conceptually, I, know. I don't even have a problem with this situation, but my body's giving me other information. Absolutely, that's right. You know, I, I've had experiences in my life where the pain was so intense that, um, and I had already started meditating. Uh, I've had a couple, more than one in my life, um, probably quite a few actually, all nighters where the pain is too too intense to sleep. Yeah. And I just sit up all night. I just sit up all night. And I wouldn't, it's not what you would normally call meditation. There are n no thoughts. There's not a storyline going on. It's just like sitting with a toothache or something, but, you know, um, searing pain and just sitting there. And a couple of these times, uh, I, I, ha I had quite, um, profound insights come from that um, because it was so intense and it was of such a long duration, you know, through the whole night. And um, would you and be so, willing to, to share the, one of the instances and the insight that came <laughs> oh, uh, without necessarily sure. the whole context, but just what, yeah, what the yeah. discovery um, was. Um, well, the, the one I remember that, um, that I'll share with you, I, I have shared it before um, uh, because it was the first one. And the first one was, uh, uh, it was, uh, I, I was having really, really, really a, a painful relationship with someone that I couldn't get away with from. And basically they, they, they hated me. They absolutely hated me. And for me, um, my personality type and stuff, that was like annihilation. It was just like uh, it, uh, terrible. And so usually in my life, I had developed this whole um, ability to uh, get through that by smiling and being sweet and winning people over, you know? And in this case, none of that was working. And so it, it really resulted in this intense feeling, which had much more, didn't just have to do with this relationship. I I knew it was something very old, but I, and anyway, I sat there all night and, um, and just about dawn, I suddenly felt myself, uh, physically as a very young child. I was sitting on a chair and my feet didn't touch the floor. I was so little. And I, I just had the insight. It was so clear that I had spent my whole life, my whole personality was based on not wanting to feel that I wasn't okay. Something had happened to this little child, nothing really horrible, nothing, no big trauma, but something had happened where this little child um, just knew that if they better be sweet and nice and the good girl and all of that, uh, uh, otherwise uh, maybe um, their mother was going to turn on them and and uh, treat them the way she was treating the older sister or something like that. I don't really know all the details of it, but all I know is that I realized that my whole personality was, had been built up around trying to not feel this feeling. And that was, that was very profound because um, it gave me such an insight into my limited persona, you know, of a identif uh, identifying as being a certain type of person and uh, my whole style and everything. Uh, it just became so clear to me that it was time to just start feeling those things. So I, that night I actually was able to kind of feel, I got to the, I guess you could call some kind of bottom of feeling what was completely unacceptable to feel all those years. And it had something to do with, I'm not okay. I'm just basically not lovable and I'm not okay. And uh, there's something wrong, you know, with me. And um, uh, so I sort of went cold turkey with that feeling, I guess, and and uh, it gave me that insight that um, I wasn't going to hide from that those feelings anymore, you know. I want to go to our next caller in just a moment. Uh, we have Sue from Michigan who's coming. But before we do, I want to say something that's maybe kind of obvious, but I want to hear what you have to say about it, Annie Pema, which is I feel like the medicine of a conversation like this that we're having and with you answering questions from Johanna, Jacqueline, John, is the medicine of, and we have thousands of people who are 
joining us right now, listening, right here live, that there's this medicine that's going into the wounded, hurting, painful places and saying, that's okay, that's, you're human. Sadness is a connector. This is the human experience. Here, Pema Chodron, a teacher we love and respect, has stayed up all night more than once in anguishing pain and sat with it and gone through it. And, you know, there's a way that it's not normalized that much in our culture. Yeah, and, so, sure. and, and so you're a voice of this kind of sane medicine that people don't get to hear that much. And I'm curious why you think, why is it so rare? I don't know. Isn't it becoming less rare? Aren't there more TED Talks on this topic and so forth in various forms? I, I do know um, that it's all popular. That's for sure. I mean, um, people who talk about this kind of thing are people seem to have quite a voracious appetite to hear about this. And, and I think it must connect with some wit- wisdom in us where we already know that that's, that's what would that's where the healing would come from not from avoidance you know and um uh so it might be rare i mean certainly culturally the it's rare but it also seems to be very very popular i uh or resonant with with people um like the people who would uh, you would reach with sounds true for instance mm-hmm. you know yeah and um so I was always very surprised by that. I mean, when I wanted to call uh, one of the books When Things Fall Apart, the publisher said, oh, no way, we can't use such a negative title. And I said, believe me, I know the audience. People will gobble that up. And in fact, so many people just um, picked it off the bookshelf because of the title, you know. I want to know about When Things Fall Apart because that's what's happening to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, so it is something that resonates deeply with people. I do find that. Mm-hmm. All right. We have uh, Sue from Michigan. Sue, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Um, Pema, it's a, a great honor to speak with you. Um, I've been following your work for years, and, oh, you've so helped me throughout my journey. So it's a, a great pleasure to talk with you. Um, my question is uh, about... Uh, vulnerability in the corporate world. I've been working in the corporate world for years, and um, and I notice it's uh, it's very difficult to be uh, vulnerable in the corporate world, especially when you're trying to move up the ladder or um, you know just get your work done and meet the strategies of the organization. And um, I notice it's often perceived um, in the workplace as um, uh, weakness. Uh, yeah. uh, and I'm curious what your what your take on that is, and how you would uh, suggest uh, an approach um, to maintain that vulnerability, but um, when there's a lot of judgment um, about your vulnerability in the workplace, and still be successful. Yeah, and particularly since you're a woman, that, that, that there's more right. They give you a harder time around that <laughs> whole subject. <laughs> right? Am I absolutely am I correct? Absolutely. Am I guessing? You are correct. Well, I guess. I, yeah. yeah, and I I find women are, you know, becoming even more and more more uh, less and less vulnerable. You know, they're finding that mm. they need to, I guess, in terms toughen up and uh, be like yeah. a guy yeah. and be like a man yeah. and you know, and suck it up. And uh, it, it gets very difficult. And I am a very open and vulnerable person. And I find myself um, kind of caught in that cycle. And mm. I know in my heart that those others are, are equally as vulnerable as I am. And they, yeah. they see that vulnerability in themselves when they see it in me. But, um, you know, just to, just to be successful in the workplace, it's, it can be quite challenging. I'm curious what your take on that is. Well, uh, I will answer you, but I want to also say that something that's fascinating to me is that a lot of these companies like Google, for instance, and uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Facebook, for instance, and Apple, for instance, they they all uh, have teachers like me come in and teach this stuff to their to their um, staff. So Mm -hmm. do you have anything like that at your place? 
No, unfortunately, in the companies that I've worked for, no. And, it, and I could be working in organizations that really just aren't supportive of that. Um, because yeah. I know that even Brene Brown um, speaks, as as you've discussed, as speaks on that subject. And I know that she, I think she's uh, um, a pretty big speaker in the in one of the big three automotive environments where she speaks yeah. on that. And I think they're more supportive of that. But in in the workplaces that that I have been in, um, there's a there's a deep uh, there is an issue there, and there is not yeah. that level of support. Yeah. 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 And you you feel committed to staying in in that particular environment because it's meaningful to you, I'm assuming. You know, act, <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I just left the organization that just didn't <laughs> offer that level of support. <laughs> yeah, but I find yeah, well, that good. I, good for you, you know, because you could find you probably could get um, employment in an organization that would be more sympathetic to that approach. Uh, yeah. For instance, one yeah. that was run by women, uh, you might find was uh, the women wouldn't have to be so hard, hard um, edged because there are a lot of women in the organization. Then they then they um, appreciate the feminine um, qualities, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it isn't, of course, mm-hmm. just a, it's not just a feminine quality, as we know, the vulnerability mm-hmm. and the, um, it's just that women um, do have a little bit of a lead in terms of. Um, more culturally it's more acceptable for women to um, feel those things you know maybe not in Mm. like your former job but in general culturally than for men and so it's nice to see that a lot of uh, men currently are getting more and more in touch with that side of themselves but um, but anyway in in the corporate world I think it might be that if it's really so um, antithetical to that those values then it is best to leave just as you have and get employment elsewhere where the values are more appreciated you know mm-hmm. I'm curious if I may ask just a quick follow-up question um, I, I feel this need to to um, to extend that to organizations that really need that and I think in the the last corporate jobs that I've had um, I've, I guess I've almost felt this need to mentor those, mentor the organizations so they could support that type of an environment like the Googles and, um, yeah. you know, and the Facebooks. And I, I wonder, you know, I, I, I've questioned as I've questioned myself, like maybe I've just tried to take on too much in those corporate worlds. And even though I'm going to be, uh, I am seeking and I'm probably going to be getting an offer soon in an organization that's that's much more suitable to me. Um, but I, I'm just curious how how is that going to help the world? How is that going to help those environments that aren't supportive of that? Do we just kind of let that go and take care of what we can within our own bubble, and uh, and and just leave that to you know to being taken care of itself? Ah, oh, well, that sounds so sort of fatalistic, but, but, um, I know, I know, I know. I think, I think, I, I think that you want to work where, where there's some opening to, to, uh, and, um, some opening to, uh, wanting to work in the way that you're describing. In other words, if there's no opening, if it's just, um, uh, currently at this point, that that particular organization mm-hmm. definitely doesn't want anything to do with that way of thinking, then it is kind of futile to, you know, to try to change it. Um, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, I do think, but if you feel there's some kind of opening, some kind of, uh, someone in a position of power who really wants this to happen, I mean, mm-hmm. th- then, then I think it's really worth trying. Okay. All right. Thank you, Pema. You're welcome. And thank you, Sue, for being part of our live call. Ani, Pema, one other thing I want to make sure we touch on is that the subtitle of this new course is a training in making friends with your mind. And I want to friends with your mind. Yeah. I want to speak to that person who has a strong inner critic, which I think is probably a lot of us. 
And yes, that right. voice in our mind that says, you know, you could have done a better job with X, Y, Z. You could have prepared. You could have said this. You could have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A voice that we hear. You could have not eaten that thing, you know, or the thing <laughs> you're eating right now or whatever it might be. Yeah, What's some right. good heart advice for how to work with that voice, right, when it's happening? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, uh I think the main thing is that you actually really hear the voice, that you hear the harshness in the voice. It's like um, that you catch yourself being critical of yourself. You catch yourself. That's the first step to, to actually really notice how hard you are being on yourself. And sometimes people will, uh, I've led, for instance, meditation sessions, which are all about notice your tone of voice. Um, when you, for instance, uh, if, for instance, if I'm giving the instruction, um, oh, if your thoughts, if your thoughts take you away, uh, if you're giving your, your object of your meditation is your breath. If your thoughts take you away and you get completely lost in thought, at some point your mind will come back and just very gently recognize that and then come back to your breath again. And so I've had sessions where people have done that for a while. And then I say, notice your tone of voice when you notice that you've been thinking, you know, uh, sometimes for the entire sitting period, you know. And, um, and uh, people, sometimes it's a revelation to them to hear how harsh they are on themselves, like, like bad dog, you know, mm-hmm. slapping themselves practically. Someone called it one in one of my classes, they call it the little general, you know, sitting mm-hmm. on your shoulder. And um, so, um, and, and sometimes with a whip, as somebody says. You know? And, and uh, so that's the first step, Tammy, I think really is noticing uh, the, your tone of voice, like noticing how hard you are on yourself. And then some kind of tenderness coming in, say, I, I don't want to be that mean to myself anymore. I don't want to be so hard on myself and actually maybe um well when it's a med- when you're actually meditating uh, i've given the instruction but notice your tone of voice and if it's harsh just actually say it again you know like if you're actually noticing that you're thinking and saying thinking and you say thinking as if you're uh, hitting yourself or something so say it again but say it more say it gentler like do it again you know train in the same thing happening, but with 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 more gentle um, uh, uh, kindness. There's so I, I think that's really really a key thing is to to notice and have this sense of oh look I'm doing it again you know I'm being mean to myself again here I go being mean to myself again and then um, lightening up um, when you realize you're doing it 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 can um, produce a lot of um, sadness in a way that you you don't want to continue to treat yourself that way mm-hmm. and um and then there's what you were talking about earlier like that there's actually nothing about you that can come up that you can't say to yourself uh uh it's it's essentially no problem it's okay whatever you're feeling right now how even if you're being harsh on yourself right now essentially you're okay you're okay and um, uh, um, uh, it would be good to, to lighten up and not be so harsh, but just know that whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, there's nothing wrong with it, that it is okay, not, not a problem. And d- developing that all-embracing attitude towards your very being, you know. We have a, a final caller, Ani Pema. This okay. is Chris okay. from Albuquerque. Chris, welcome. From Albuquerque. Yes, hello. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank hello, you. Chris. Uh, yes, uh, I'd like to, I'll ask my question. Um, Pema, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about uh, how to work with chronic illness uh, in the context of vulnerability or vulnerability practice. It's something I deal with, and it just requires a daily confrontation with extreme fatigue, uh, with an awareness that my capacities are no longer what they once were. And so I'm just wondering what uh, that might look like 
in terms of using this as an opportunity to to sort of work with vulnerability. Right. Do you do you have some form of um, immune breakdown, um, like a chronic fatigue or something like that? Yeah, it seems to be something in the chronic fatigue category that also has a strong component of just chronic severe sleep deprivation. So I kind of have that yeah. consistent somatic experience of just extreme fatigue. So there's kind right, of a right, constant right. feeling of that in my body. And, and then, of course, the thoughts right. that go along with that. And do you have, along with the fatigue, do you have the feeling of like no chi, like no life force, like hard to lift your arm practically? Uh, yes, I think that's a good description. And, you know, there's the physical experience of that, um, of that energy drain, but also kind of a mental counterpart to that where I just feel as if even my sense of self is almost dissolving or crumbling beneath the weight of this kind of ongoing day-to-day experience. Right, 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 right. How long have you had it? Uh, it's been going on for around four or five years now. Yeah. I had I had something like that, Chris. I had it for over 20 years. And um, uh, we just called it chronic fatigue when, when it... And, but um, so I think one of the things is um, that I found in working with this was as much relaxing with the situation as possible and trying to develop, I, I don't know, uh, in my case, I couldn't work anymore or anything like that. So I, I developed a lifestyle where I could sleep as much as I needed to. I like had very, very little um, on my schedule um, and uh, things like that, you know, to allow myself to relax with the illness and not be, um, uh, tormented by not being able to keep up, not being able to keep up with the schedule or keep up with how I used to be, you know? Um, So the mental component that causes so much suffering, I've found uh, in talking with many people who have a similar thing, uh, is that is not necessary and is the mental component where you just, it just, upsets you so much to not be able to do what you used to be able to do and there's some sense of people feel different things like shame or embarrassment or and as you say uh, like if I'm not that accomplished person that I used to be who am I you know now right do you have that feeling Uh, Absolutely. And it's really helpful what you're saying, especially the focus on the mental component. I'm just aware of how that really is compounding my suffering, whether I'm comparing how I used to be to how I am now, but also just offering myself that kind of softness that, that, uh, that it's okay to sort of need these adaptations that you described, you know, with the culture around me, I feel that what's celebrated is battling against it somehow powering through maintaining the former life as long as possible. And that's actually what I've done. But in some ways, it's almost compounded my suffering. Oh, absolutely. It it will compound your suffering, definitely. And then that mental anguish, which is not, which you can, um, you can work with meditation with that in terms of um, noticing how, you know, noticing your discursive thoughts and your habitual patterns around uh, not being not being the person that you always identified with uh, any longer. And and so if the more that you can sort of realize that and and not go down that road with the uh, storylines about that, uh, then but let, let me put it this way. When you do go down that long road and you do have those uh, storylines about poor me and I, you know, I, and, and feeling like I used to be like this and I'm not like that anymore. And all of that genre of thinking, uh, that definitely makes you sicker. There's no question about the mental stress and anguish definitely makes you feel worse. And, um, so I don't know. I, I think what I found was I just had to give into it. I just had to give into it. You know, there didn't seem to be any other way around it. And um, 
So I just allowed myself to sleep all I did. And then every once in a while, I'd feel better. And and you learn tricks like um, don't clean out your garage the minute you feel better. You know, <laughs> like let someone told me, someone said, it's like, um, uh, think of energy as like gasoline in a car and you don't want the car to run out of gas. And that, that the minute you begin to feel better, you try to, you know, go, uh, run the car on zero. So basically they said you should think of it in terms of you want to build a, ba- a kind of bank of energy. You want to build energy so that you have a little energy to do a, a few things, you know. Actually what happens is you you really get transformed in the process because first of all, you give up that strong identity of being that other person. You go through the very profound questioning of then who am I now? And that gets you closer to realizing that you're not fixed. You're not a fixed identity. And currently, you're someone with chronic fatigue and it feels horrible, you know. And, um, and, uh, there's, and you'll, you'll, you'll do whatever you can, you know, to try to um, be free of it. But on the other hand, the other thing I found was uh, struggling, struggling, struggling just made me sicker and sicker also. So um, uh, relaxing helps a lot. Relaxing helps a lot. I got to the point where I felt like I had a Zen master behind me with a stick. And every time I started to gear up to my old personality of accomplisher, the person who accomplished so much, that gearing up energy, it would be like I got hit with this stick. I would, all my symptoms would come on like dramatically. And so I learned from that. I learned that to not gear up. And that was overcoming a major habitual pattern, you know, and just learn to relax a lot more and be much easier with life. I learned so much from the process. And in my case, I I did. I finally discovered that I was uh, allergic to nickel and I had a nickel backed tooth. And uh, I had been sort of basically having metal poisoning all these years. And so that's what was causing it for me. So they took the tooth out and then it still took three years to get back to normal. But I did at least find something that could be dealt with, you know, but not everybody does. That's for sure. Yes, thank you. That's extremely helpful. I appreciate those insights. You're welcome. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Pema, in conclusion, I wanted to just have a pith instruction on the idea of unconditional confidence. I know this is something you teach on. And how our listeners can find, what is the source of unconditional confidence when it comes to living with vulnerability? What is the source of unconditional confidence? Oh, dear, Tammy. (laughs) Got to ask you a tough question here at the end. Where do we get it? Where do we get this confidence to move forward? I know well, forward it, is a see, word that's, that's important the, to that's you. That's the thing. It's like a bank of energy that is always accessible to us. And we have to figure out what, do we, what can we do to a- access it. And in the process, the first thing you learn, and this is a, a, pro- a very, very helpful process, you learn what uh, like, uh, dampens the energy, what closes the energy down what shuts it down, you know, and then you do learn what opens it up. Someone was saying, you know, sometimes unconditional confidence is as much as like you're depressed, you get out of bed and you go and you take a shower, you know, and maybe sing in the shower or something to just, to just get in touch with that, uncover that or unlock that bank of energy that that's always accessible to you. So it's like, um, how do you find enthusiasm or uh, joy when you're feeling uh, depressed and down and despondent? And, and um, those are the kind of, those are practitioners' questions. Those are the questions that someone who wants to use their life to wake up begins to ask, uh, rather than, you know, um, what kind of pill can I take? Um, it's more like, how do I rouse my unconditional confidence? How do I get in touch with it? But I think it's helpful to think of it as a bank of energy that's always accessible to us. And we have to see what it is that blocks it and what it is that unlocks it. 
and then start to go with what unlocks it. And meditation is definitely an excellent, excellent tool uh, for doing just that, you know, to making that, those kind of discoveries about what blocks it and what unlocks it. And um, so I don't know if that's what you were expecting, but maybe that's as pithy as I can get tonight. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. I want to thank you. And I want to thank Johanna, Jacqueline, John, Sue, and Chris for your participation. You really made the conversation rich, meaningful, and specific. Ani Pema, thank you. You're welcome, Tammy. And thank you very, very much. And I hope people enjoy the class. You've been listening to a special broadcast of Insights at the Edge on Living with Vulnerability with Pema Chodron. If you're interested in taking the online course, please visit SoundsTrue.com. In this course, you'll get five hours of teachings, guided audio meditations, a printable course workbook, and journaling exercises to help guide you through your journey of living with vulnerability. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at SoundsTrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 